Friends, this is a reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. You yourselves know, siblings, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully mistreated at Philippi, as you know, we had courage in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in spite of great oppression. For our appeal does not spring from deceit or impure motives or trickery, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the message of this gospel, even so as we speak, we do so not to please mortals, but to please God who tests our hearts. As you know, and as God is our witness, we never came with words of flattery or a pretext for greed, nor did we seek praise from mortals, whether from you or from others, though we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nurse, tenderly caring for her own children. So deeply do we care for you that we are determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also of our own selves, because you have become so very dear to us. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts together in this place and in all places be found pleasing to you, O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've been thinking a lot lately about how disasters often bring people together. The very things that bring out the worst in our world can sometimes bring about the best within humanity. For instance, New Yorkers tell beautiful stories about this happening after 9-11. We saw it in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and after Hurricane Harvey in Houston a few years ago, too. But a recent article in the New York Times suggests that there is at least one exception to this idea that disasters bring about the best in people, and that is pandemics. I don't know about you, but that became blatantly clear to me earlier this year when the grocery stores were empty and folks couldn't even get the basic necessities they needed in the early days of COVID-19. So in this article, David Brooks points out that while some disasters can and do bring people together, if history is any judge, then pandemics generally drive people apart. Because these are crises in which social distancing or staying away from each other is actually a virtue. It's needed right now. But it also means that dread and fear of one another can begin to overwhelm our natural bonds of affection and empathy for one another. Pandemics not only kill people, But as he says in the title of this article linked in the comments, pandemics kill compassion too. 
For instance, in his book on the 1665 London epidemic, Daniel Defoe says this was a time when everyone's private safety lay so near to them that they had no room to pity the distresses of others. The danger of immediate death took away all bonds of love, all concern for one another. Or when cholera struck Naples in 1884, rumors swept through the lower city that officials were deliberately spreading the disease among the people, so that when public health workers came to help, many of the local people actually revolted, throwing furniture out their windows at the health care workers and even hurling them down the stairs. The Spanish flu of 1918 produced similar results, too. John Barry, author of The Great Influenza, says that as conditions worsened, healthcare workers in city after city pleaded for volunteers to help care for the sick, but very few people actually stepped forward. In Philadelphia, the head of emergency aid pleaded for help in taking care of sick children, and no one answered. He wrote, there are families in which every member is ill, And the children are actually starving because there is no one to give them food. And yet still, no one came forward to help. David Brooks says that this actually may explain one of the most puzzling features of the 1918 pandemic, which is this. When it was over, people didn't talk about it. There are very few books written about it either. Famous writers like Fitzgerald, Faulkner, and Hemingway all witnessed this pandemic firsthand, yet none of them even mention it in their writings. Which is especially striking when you consider that roughly 675,000 Americans lost their lives to the Spanish flu, which is more than the number of Americans who were killed in World War I, World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War combined. I've studied each of these wars in school at some point or another, and I don't know about you, but I've heard more about the Spanish flu of 1918 in the past six or seven months than I have in my entire lifetime. David Brooks speculates that perhaps the reason people didn't write or share much about the Spanish flu is because they didn't like who they had become when it was all over. It was a shameful memory, so people suppressed it within themselves. Writer Dorothy Ann Petit adds that the 1918 pandemic contributed to spiritual apathy, too. People emerge from this pandemic physically and spiritually fatigued, which I am sure we can all relate to in these days. She said that the flu had a sobering and disillusioning effect on the entire country. But there is one exception to this idea that pandemics kill compassion, and that is within our healthcare workers. In every pandemic, there have always been doctors and nurses and all kinds of medical workers who respond with unbelievable heroism and incredible compassion. And I know we can definitely see that happening among us today, too. 
As David Brooks writes at the end of the article, maybe this time we will learn from their example. After all, it wouldn't be a bad idea to take steps to fight the moral disease that accompanies the physical one. And so how do we begin to do that? Especially in light of the very real fatigue I know we are all experiencing these days, not to mention the escalating cases of COVID-19 surrounding us. I'm struck by our scripture readings for today, both of which highlight this invitation that I believe is before us. We have in Matthew 22 the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he outlines the ways in which they are to share that love with their neighbors using more than their words. Instead, he invites them to share their very selves, their very lives with one another. It reminds me of some of the words we hold as sacred here at Highland. That when we leave this form of worship each week, we simply enter into another form of worship. The worship that is our very lives. But especially at a time when we can't gather for worship face to face, I believe that loving our neighbor is perhaps one of the most significant ways we can worship God with our very lives right now even if that presents some unique challenges in light of this pandemic. The question is, what will that look like for you and for me? And what will that look like for us here at Highland? You may remember back in 2014 when Ebola came to the United States. Unbeknownst to him, a Liberian man named Thomas Eric Duncan was carrying the disease. Thomas had flown to Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport with plans to marry a Dallas woman named Louise Tro, the mother of Duncan's son. Five days after being reunited with his family in Dallas, Thomas began to feel sick. He went to the emergency room, but the doctor simply gave him a prescription for antibiotics and sent him home. It wasn't until a second trip to the hospital by ambulance two days later that a nurse started to put the pieces together and made the call that there was a possible Ebola patient at the hospital. Despite treatment, Thomas Duncan passed away from this disease while being under quarantine several days later. Two of his nurses also contracted the disease while taking care of him but were later cured. Meanwhile, when the public got wind of this report, it suddenly sent the city of Dallas and soon the rest of the country spiraling in fear. I was living in Waco at the time, just an hour and a half south of Dallas, and I remember how quickly that anxiety began to permeate our whole city. An article in the Dallas Morning News says, In the midst of the Ebola crisis, we learned a lot about the chaotic, reason-eroding effects of pure, unharnessed panic. For a few dicey days, it sometimes seems that Dallas was ground zero for the unhinging of our entire nation. 
In hindsight, it's easy to minimize how intensely frightened people were at the first and to date only Ebola outbreak in the United States. But in the midst of this fear and anxiety and panic, one of our sister churches, Wilshire Baptist Church in Dallas, jumped into action. Because Louise Tro, the wife of Thomas Duncan and her children, are members at Wilshire Baptist Church. Wilshire was suddenly thrust into the national spotlight when they discovered that one of their own church members had for over a week been living with a carrier of this infectious disease. Now Louise and her family were already under quarantine, but reporters from across the country filled the balcony of the sanctuary during worship the next Sunday just to see how this church was going to respond. And Pastor George Mason looked out at his church in a time of incredible anxiety, and he said this, Love moves toward people, and fear moves away. Looking back, he said, We did everything we could do safely during that time to move toward. George, while wearing all of the proper protection, visited Louise and her children when they were under quarantine almost every day. Because of the Ebola infection risk, crews had removed all of the furniture in their apartment and stripped it down to the carpeting, and they weren't allowed to leave. So the church would bring by whatever they needed. Meanwhile, media were outside, closely monitoring their apartment 24-7. Ultimately, George and a local Catholic priest worked with government officials to safely move the family in the middle of the night to an off-site campgrounds where they could at least have some more space and privacy and the media wouldn't know where they were. Well, after their quarantine was all over, Louise and her family were grieving at all that had happened to them and all that had been taken away from them. And in the midst of that unbelievably hard time, not one place in Dallas would rent them a place to live. So several people from Wilshire stepped in to help buy them a condo so that Louise and her children could ultimately rent once they got back on their feet again. But even once they found a place to live, they had nothing. Officials who decontaminated their apartment had burned all of their possessions, saving only a few personal documents, some photographs, and a Bible. And so once again, this faith community was immediately ushered into the daily work of love. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of a better picture of the worship that is our very lives than that. But here's the thing. Sharing our lives, sharing our very selves with one another, especially in times like this, as we read in 1 Thessalonians, it's, it's never easy As Professor Holly Heron points out, it requires a willingness on our part to be vulnerable, to not only share what we know, but to live what we know. 
Because if we only share what we know about God's love, that, that doesn't really cost us anything. There's no risk associated with that. But if we seek to live with God's love, if we really try to show up in the world with our very lives and the ways that we care to and respond to one another, friends, that is going to be hard and holy work. Because this kind of love asks us to get out of our comfort zones. It is always going to cost us something. It means putting ourselves out there in ways that may not always be reciprocated. It means to risk being hurt by the people with whom we have shared our very lives. It means that people at some point will almost always let us down. And yet I also believe that vulnerability is the only way forward. If we truly seek to share our full selves with one another and with the world in ways that are real and transformative. And friends, I believe that this is what life in the kingdom of God is all about. You see, if this pandemic has made anything very clear to us, it is this. We need one another. I don't need what you know about God. I need the God I experience in and through you. I was having a hard day earlier this week when one of our Highland members, Chris Webb, came to visit me here at church. And I needed what Chris had to say to me that day. It made a difference in the rest of my week You see, at a time when I can't see your faces as I preach and I'm preaching to this little dot with a red arrow pointing toward it, I need you. As our staff continue to discern the best ways to engage with one another and to live on mission and to care for our community in the midst of a difficult time, we need you, Highland. At a time when our finance and faithful ministry Faithful giving ministry groups are working endless hours toward budget preparations for 2021 and what it will look like for us to do the work of love together here at Grinstead and Cherokee next year. Highland, we need you. As we will soon begin holiday collections for Habitat for Humanity and Highland Community Ministries and Shelby Park Christmas, we need you to be a part I am so encouraged by our neighbor groups that are starting at Highland this month. Carol and our deacons are doing an incredible job working to ensure that everyone who considers themselves to be part of our Highland family is in a neighbor group. And so a deacon will be contacting you by the end of the month. If for some reason you don't get contacted, please contact us. Make sure we have your information and your correct address in our system so that we can get you assigned to a group. We genuinely want to know how you are doing because we love you. We miss you. We care about you. And we need the unique and beautiful God gift that our good God can only offer to this world through you. Friends, sometimes worship at Highland looks like gathering in this sacred space to sing and pray and reflect together. 
And I can only dream of the day when we can do that together face to face again. But sometimes the worship that is our very lives looks like making a phone call to check on one of our senior adults who can't get out of their house right now. Sometimes it looks like coming together to raise money to help a church member who's in a really difficult situation. Sometimes it looks like taking a moment to check on that family who is absolutely overwhelmed and exhausted right now, working from home, 24-7 parenting, and dealing with NTI, or dropping off food and drinks for people who are quarantined in a trailer outside their house. Or just checking on that person you haven't seen for a while because you want them to know that they are not forgotten. Friends, I don't know what your life of worship looks like these days. I can't always see it. But my prayer is that we as the Highland family will not shirk back in the midst of a pandemic. Rather, my hope is that we will be a people who boldly and creatively and vulnerably and prophetically show up for one another with our whole selves in whatever ways God is leading us. That we will be a people who live with a radical love of our neighbor even in the midst of a pandemic. And that when all of this is finally over, They won't say that the pandemic of 2020 killed our compassion, but rather that the pandemic challenged and invigorated and inspired our compassion and the worship that is our very lives. May it be so of us, Highland. Amen.